Hello, welcome to Heart Failure Beat, a podcast produced by the Heart Failure Society of America. Heart Failure Beat is designed specifically for clinicians who treat heart failure patients in the United States of America and around the world. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Priya Mapathy, an assistant professor of medicine and advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. And my name is Dr. Michael Beasley, assistant professor of medicine and an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist at the Yale School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now let's get to our episode. Hello, everybody. We're coming to you from Cleveland, Ohio, at the Heart Failure Society of America 2023 Annual Scientific Meeting. We're here with the newly sworn in president of the Heart Failure Society of America, Dr. Jim Fang. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Priyomapathy, and I'm Dr. Michael Beasley from the Heart Failure Beat. Dr. Fang, thank you for joining us. To give a little bit of an introduction to Dr. Fang, he spent his uh, undergraduate years and years of medical training at Duke University later moved to Johns Hopkins, where Dr. Umapathy currently resides, to complete his residency training, and then moved up to Boston, where he spent his fellowship training at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Dr. Fang then was a faculty member at the Brigham and Harvard Medical School for a number of years prior to moving to here in Cleveland, uh, where he spent time at university hospitals, and then eventually moved uh, out west to the University of Utah, where he's currently the chief of cardiovascular medicine and also the chief of the uh, cardiovascular service line at the University of Utah. As we mentioned, uh, Dr. Fang has recently been sworn in as the new president of the Heart Failure Society of America, and we're uh, very grateful to spend some time with him and, and hear what he has in store for the membership for the coming year. Welcome, Dr. Fang, and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It's a real privilege to be uh, leading this organization for the next year. We are so excited for your term. And I just wanted to start with just a couple of, you know, sort of general questions from a 50,000 foot view. There are so many different issues that are affecting the heart failure community, both patients, us as professionals, and really heart failure teams around the country. So I was hoping during your, your term for your one year, what do you envision, and if you could define just in major stroke, the three biggest issues that are facing the heart failure community, both from a patient perspective and from us as an organization? Yeah, no, thank you for the question. Well, it's probably best to think about what is the mission statement of this organization. And this is, a, I think, a very important issue in any organization is to not lose sight of that issue because as you point out, you get very complicated very quickly. So, you know, we're fundamentally about reducing the burnout. And so what, at least in my opinion, for the next uh, year are the three things that we would like to address that will address that question. Mm -hmm. One is to improve the quality of the heart payer care for this country. We've had remarkable advances in pharmacologic management, but even if you've got a great tool, it's not very useful if you're not using it. Mm -hmm. And so one of our really big initiatives is to figure out how to improve the quality of care of the heart failure patients. That segues into the next issue, which is being useful to the providers that do this care. And as you know, one of the biggest challenges in our discipline is the decrease in popularity of our fellowship training. Mm -hmm. And whether or not that is a signal of something bigger or whether that is a loss of visibility of discipline of part of the community, et cetera, I think is something that we need to address and we hope to address this year. 
And then finally is research. So many of uh, many people know that cancer gets more money yep. at the NIH level for research. And this year will be really the first year that we have a foundation for research. That, wow. Okay. Uh, you're more than welcome. Very exciting. Well, that's <laughs> you're amazing. More, you're more than welcome to donate to to see you know where you know can we stimulate more research and bring more visibility. And I hope at the end of the day, one of the ways we'll be able to measure the success of all of those three ideas is our membership. Our membership should grow as a consequence of the greater visibility of the messaging parsayer, of making sure the providers are improving the quality of care, et cetera. I, I really think that seeing our membership grow would be a great way to measure the success of our efforts with new suburbs. That's amazing. That's a, what a wonderful answer and really sort of a tripartite statement to the mission of patient care, education and research. That's really extraordinary and very inspiring. Thank you for, for sharing that. And Michael, I'm going to I'm not going to hog Dr. Tyne. <laughs> so I guess I guess, you know, among those things that you've mentioned, you know, that are, are very important possible priorities of the society. Is there one thing that you are gravitating towards as kind of a personal mission or something that is very important for you or that you really are excited about working on during this year, either of, you know, one of those three things or something outside of those three issues that you've already brought up? Well, you know, they're all very important to me. Um, I think they're all interdigitated and, and connected, but I would like to really concentrate on our training. And because it touches the whole thing, you know, it's hard to improve the quality of care unless the people are delivering that care are well-trained and how we do that. And that interdigitates with a passion of mine, which is uh, fellowship training. I was a fellowship director many years ago. I still have a monthly fellows report. Oh. You know, it, it's just a real passion. And it, frankly, it's not just about cardiologists or house officers. It's about nurses, pharmacists, advanced practice folks, primary care physicians, you know, the burden of heart failure will simply not be met by more heart failure trained cardiologists. It really yes. the team discipline. And Absolutely. I think that's why at HFSA, if you think about it, it really distinguishes itself from other societies because we are fundamentally team-based provider uh -huh. organization. Mm -hmm. Very few societies I know have really embraced pharmacists and nurses, yeah. advanced practice folks. You know, I mean... A lot of societies talk about it. So thank you again, Dr. Fang. This has been an amazing interview. Yeah. And great to hear about your vision for what you're going to do with this year and look forward to all the great things and good things to come. Thank you. Thank you. It's a real privilege to be here and for being invited to do this. Well, here we are at the annual scientific meeting of the Heart Failure Society of America, Cleveland, Ohio. Up next for you, we have three late-breaking clinical trials that we're going to explore. And for the first trial, we're joined by Dr. Marat Fudin from Duke University. Priya? It is such an honor for us to have you here. And you must be breathless because you just presented this trial a couple of hours ago. And, you know, the entire room was a buzz. So congratulations on amazing and transformative work. And I, was, and I was hoping that for our listening and viewing audience, if you could give us in two minutes, 50,000 foot view of your trial, your design, your results, and where you think you're going 
for the forwards and the futures. So, I mean, quickly, we're starting with the population on hand and the concept. So we chose to target probably one of the most heterogeneous populations out there, HFPEF. You know, the little old lady and the young obese man, all of them could meet definitions of HFPEF. And clearly, it is not the same underlying mechanism. One of the mechanisms that we are specifically targeting is what I refer to as volume shifter, volume distributor. So I use this bottle trick. If you squeeze the bottle, volume shifts within the bottle into the chest, increase the filling pressures. That shifting mechanism is sympathetically driven, fight or flight. If we to get rid of that signal, maybe we could help some people fully understanding that this mechanism cannot underlie every physiology of HFPEF. So with the understanding that we don't know exactly who will be a responder ahead of time before we to embark on a large pivotal trial, let's say 500, 6,000 patients, we did this pilot feasibility study. But we didn't want to do that in a single arm study given sham effect. Sham effect is very, very powerful, mm. just as placebo is for drugs. So we designed a randomized controlled study that's sham controlled and made it actually so large, making it the largest device feasibility study ever done in the space of FPF, which is 90 patients that were randomized. And prior to that, we had an a rolling phase where people got to practice the procedure. The procedure itself is relatively uh, uh, simple. It's so easy, quote unquote, that it can be done by the Venus guys, aka I'm one of them. Mm -hmm. So I could do the procedure. Mm -hmm. There are some procedural steps that might require some help for interventional cardiologists, but all of it is relatively easy. It was well tolerated, it was safe. But what we found is that in a total cohort of otherwise very diverse HFPEF population, we saw no benefit on our primary endpoint, which was a reduction in filling pressure with exercise. There was no benefit on that with exercise and the rest. But then because we sort of anticipated, of course we hoped to help everybody. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, there's no, there's, no, there's no harm in being grandiose, but the problem is reality hits pretty quick. So we anticipated some will benefit, some won't. About 55 patients benefited if we to define them as responders, how do we define responders? This was a pre-specified analysis where actually we ran certain variables to see whether treatment benefits these variables more or not. And some of the variables that popped up as significant were patients that had the ability to augment cardiac output and did not drop their pulse pressure, which is a surrogate of cardiac output augmentation, stroke augmentation with standing. So if you stood up and your blood pressure fell, mm -hmm. you could not increase your cardiac output. And if you couldn't increase your heart rate, you didn't see benefit from this treatment. Mm. Think of this, the bottle shifting is not gonna help somebody who cannot increase the heart rate, cannot augment the cardiac output otherwise. And the other variable that came out as significant was um, diastolic dysfunction. So you had very severe diastolic dysfunction. Think of it, restrictive cardiomyopathy, those big atria, the small ventricle, like the ice cream cones, I call them. These people didn't see benefit from reducing preloads. Those are the people that we start on metadrins of the opinion. Now, just to, to clarify for our audience, uh, the trial is called Rebalance Heart Failure, yeah, Rebalance right. HF. Um, where do you see the next steps going as far as, you know, what you're going to be looking for and following up on these results? So the natural progression for these type of studies, we have a pilot feasibility, we identified a responder group. So now we need to validate prospectively that this responder group can now, you know, in out of proportion benefit every time we treat them. And so there will be a prospective validation study going on. I don't think it will be very, very large. It might be even smaller than the current study because we now go only for responders. And so that's going to be next before we then at some point embark on a larger outcomes trial. Very, very exciting. And I think the more we know about HFPEF, the more we realize that all HFPEF is not the same, obviously. I and I think <laughs> your study and your trial really highlight that that HFPEF is a heterogeneous mixture where if you do not pre-specify the type of HFPEF that you're dealing with, you cannot really feasibly deliver a therapy that's efficacious for that group. It is not one size fits all. So congratulations on a great uh, study. 
and for defining better a responder population in this trial. And we look forward in anticipation for a prospective study. Look forward to it myself. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. And we're here now to talk about the second late-breaking clinical trial of interest with Dr. Marvin Kahn-Sam. Dr. Kahn-Sam is a professor of medicine at Tufts University. He's the director of the Cardiovascular Center at Tufts Medical Center and a past president of the Heart Failure Association of America. Dr. Kahn-Sam earlier today presented the results of Anthem Hefref. Dr. Kahn-Sam, thanks for taking the time to meet with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for asking. So please, for our listeners, could you describe uh, your trial and, and what, you, what you found? Sure. Well, just as a basis, most of the audience probably knows that heart failure is characterized by autonomic dysregulation. Uh, and that can be at least partially reversed with, by stimulating the vagal nerve and increasing parasympathetic tone. And we achieve it by stimulating the, the right the right cervical vagus nerve, uh, and uh, we can achieve autonomic uh, regulation through doing that. So uh, we embarked on a large-scale randomized control trial, open label, uh, two-to-one randomization between patients who were implanted with the vagal nerve stimulator used for therapy uh, on top of guideline-directed medical therapy versus guideline-directed medical therapy alone. It was a trial that went, a lot of, went through a lot of development together with, in collaboration with the FDA. We had an adaptive design for how many patients we were going to study, but we were going to study up to 1,000 patients to be followed for at least 16 months, with the primary endpoint being time to cardiovascular death or heart failure hospitalization. <laughs> Should should I just keep going? (laughs) So, unfortunately, we after about 500 patients were enrolled, the sponsor decided to terminate the trial early, and so we were left with a population of 532 patients. You know, instead of the the proposed ultimate thousand patients that we might have gone to, which did reduce our statistical power. The audience might want to know that we kind of. Took an interest in how we could still get the most out of this on behalf of, of the patients who participated. And because we were all blinded, the FDA agreed that we could pre specify an additional endpoint. And we did pre specify what's called the win ratio with three components time to cardiovascular death, number of heart failure hospitalizations, and performance on the Kansas City cardiomyopathy questionnaire overall summary score. So uh, the result of it was that in terms of the original primary endpoint, time to first cardiovascular death or heart failure hospitalization, uh, it was not statistically positive. We weren't expecting it, knowing how our population had truncated. There was a favorable trend with a point estimate of the hazard ratio 0.84, which did not reach statistical significance, but it did show some separation of curves. And the components uh, also trended in the right direction, particularly heart failure hospitalizations, which had an estimate for the hazard ratio of 0.81 and did show nice separation contributing to the overall endpoint. When we looked at our uh, secondarily developed uh, endpoint, 
the, the win ratio associated with those three components, it turned out that it was significantly positive favoring the treatment uh, with a win ratio of 1.25. Without going into a whole explanation of what the win ratio is, it basically compares every patient to, to every patient in the other group and counts the number of wins and losses for the treatment group. And that ratio for the trial was 1.25, and that was a statistically significant result. And, uh, you know, to me, I think importantly, every component of that endpoint, the cardiovascular death, number of heart failure hospitalizations, and Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire, all contributed to the favorability of that, which I think is meaningful. The work are pretty, is that a real result in eyes? So, you know, the device was safe. It was, we by far hit our safety endpoint of freedom from device or implantation related serious adverse event to the tune of 96% freedom. And, uh, you know, so we're left with a trial that unfortunately, statistically, bottom line was a negative trial, but hurt in terms of statistical power. And then left with a positive result in a secondarily, but in a pre-specified way, developed by the executive committee that did show significance. Um, and, you know, the question is, where do we go from here? And I think the answer is, you know, my answer to that is, we're going to put something together for the FDA, show them what we got, and see if we can identify a path forward, you know, for this technology, which I personally believe it. But you can't go by my religious beliefs. We have to actually prove it to people and sell it. That's where we are. Dr. Gassam, congratulations on a, a very hypothesis-generating and provocative trial. And for our third and final late-breaking clinical trial, we're here with Dr. James Januzzi. Dr. Januzzi is a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and the director of heart failure research at the BAME Institute in Boston. He is presenting Tracer HF here at the scientific meeting. Dr. Januzzi, thanks for taking the time to meet with us Yeah, today. thank you very much for having me. Dr. Januzzi, I think you gave us insights onto an amazing trial. So this morning, copper chelation, who yep. knew? <laughs> yeah, who knew? You know, there's been a lot of interest, obviously, in heart failure about trace minerals, iron in particular. But it turns out copper plays an important role in cellular metabolism, response to injury, fibrosis, and healing. Um, clinically, copper deficiency actually causes a cardiomyopathy. And in experimental models, if you restore normal intracellular copper balance, you can actually slow down progression of heart failure and foster reverse remodeling. But the problem is, until a therapeutic was identified that could foster um, intracellular copper concentration normalization, the hypothesis couldn't be explored. It turns out that trientine is a drug that's been used for more than 40 years as a chelator, as you say, to remove copper from the body of patients with Wilson's disease, which is a disease of copper overload. However, we're not harnessing the chelation effects of trientine. At very low doses, sub-chelation doses, it actually acts as a chaperone to carry copper from the cytosol into the nucleus. And in animal models, again, preclinical models, um, use of trientine reversed cardiac remodeling in models of heart failure. So Tracer HF was a phase two study looking at low-dose trientine, ascending doses. We're doing a dose ranging to plan for future studies. 
of triantine in people with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. That's amazing. And when, how was this trial designed? Did you have a placebo arm? How was your enrollment? Yeah, yeah. So this was a study of patients with heart failure with reduced EF, symptomatic, with an elevated NT pro BNP, essentially. Pretty typical for HEFREF studies. It was placebo controlled. It's a multiple ascending dose trial. So we tested three different doses of triantine versus placebo in a blinded fashion. It was a 12 week long study with a primary endpoint of proportional change in N-terminal pro-BNP and secondary outcome measures of mechanistic improvements, cardiac reverse remodeling, six minute walk distance change and change in health status by assessed by the Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire. And was this on a background of GDMT? Yeah, great question. Also, critically important in my work at the Heart Failure Collaboratory, we make it very clear that novel therapies really need to be tested against well-managed patients. And in this study, the treatment was remarkably good. More than 95% on beta blockers, wow. greater than 90% on RAS inhibitors, including 83% on Secubitril Valsartan. So we're talking about patients on contemporary GDMT more than 90% on spironolactone or aplerinone, and about 40% on SGLT2 inhibitors. So really good, solid background medical therapy. Absolutely. Um, and with this cohort, what do you think were really the big takeaways and results? Yeah, great questions. To think about how we are going to fit triantine in if it develops as a therapeutic and heart failure. The first thing is the drug was well tolerated, was not associated with changes in blood pressure or heart rate, which is important given the fact that a lot of these patients have very little blood pressure to spend given how aggressively managed they were. Um, at four and eight weeks, we saw that the highest dose of triantine was associated with a significant reduction in nt pro -BNB. This was not sustained out to 12 weeks, however, where hmm. we saw an uptrend. So we're trying to understand that better. However, despite that finding, there were consistent improvements in reverse remodeling, six-minute walk distance at Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire, favoring the 300 milligram twice-daily dose. That's fascinating. And did you find that uh, maybe there was some population that benefited the most? Yeah. So, so in phase two trials, it's all about identifying safety, efficacy, and also fine-tuning who you're going to study in future trials. And in retrospective post hoc analyses, we found that individuals coming in with an ejection fraction at or below the median of 30% showed a really exaggerated benefit. And we'll be presenting those data. Basically, we found very consistent and substantial reductions in NT pro BNP in these patients. In addition, they showed consistent reverse remodeling with improvements in EF, reductions in left ventricular volumes very dramatic improvements in Kansas City cardiomyopathy questionnaire. 11 points in 12 weeks improvements. That's stunning. And, and so this really informs the future steps that we may take with the drug in terms of developing phase three pro programs around uh, treating HEFREF. That's really exciting. And do you, um, do you anticipate following these patients out for a longer period of time? Yeah, so the reason why the study was only 12 weeks was the FDA asked us to prove safety I should mention there was no evidence at all for chelation of copper or iron in these patients. And so we confirmed safety in the short term, which now allows us to do the longer term study. And of course, we'll monitor those factors in long term. I should mention that triantine is being studied in other cardiovascular diseases at higher doses that we're looking at. So, I, you know, I feel confident the safety, you know, will be there. This being a drug that's been used to treat another disease condition for decades, 
Does that make this then possibly a very affordable treatment for our patients? Should it ever come to? It's a, a great question. Yeah. It is generic. Yeah. And so, yes, in theory, it could be very affordable. Mm-hmm. The bigger question will be ultimately how the uh, the drug maker manages the cost of the drug. Mm-hmm. One of the, I think, real important advantages of trying team, should it pan out, is that it can be added on top of the guideline-directed medical therapy that we give our patients. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll remind the viewers that despite the real advances that we've made with four-drug therapy for reduced EF heart failure, the the event rate in these patients is still quite significant. Mm -hmm. So anything we can do to improve outcomes of these patients would be really expected to be an advance. Given the lack of hemodynamic effects, it could be added onto this medical program. And furthermore, when you get to the EF of 30 and lower population, that's a population that is sort of an unmet need population too. So we're really confident that this could potentially be a really important advance. Wonderful. This is a, it's an amazing body of work. Congratulations on a fantastic trial. And thank you so much for going over your trial and your results. And we, as a heart failure community, they're all very, very interested to see where this is going to go. And is it going to be the fifth and sixth pillar of GDX? <laughs> right. Very, very soon. <laughs> Thanks so much, Dr. Januzzi, thank for you. joining us and sharing your insights. Uh, thank you for having me. Really Thanks appreciate so much. It. Appreciate it. Hello, everybody. Again, coming from the Heart Failure Society of America annual scientific meeting in Cleveland, Ohio, we're here with two of our social media catalysts to talk about all of the great and wonderful things that have been happening during the meeting this year. So I'd like to take uh, the moment to introduce um, our guests. Uh, first, we're here with uh, Dr. Shashank Sinha, who's coming to us from Innova Heart and Vascular Center in Fairfax, Virginia. And Dr. Anju Bardwaj, who is coming to us from the University of Texas in Houston and Texas Medical Center. So Dr. Sinha and Dr. Bardwaj, thank you so much for joining us today. Really excited to hear about everything that you think has been such an amazing part of the conference this year. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. No problem. No, you guys are probably the busiest people here because you've gone like running from session to session. Like I know Shashank was like spearheading this early career event and Anju is like blowing Twitter up. You know, I think it might actually just collapse if you send one more tweet. But no, thank you so much for your your efforts. And I just want to take this opportunity as sort of the representatives for HFSA's pulse of what's happening at the meeting. Uh Do you guys want to maybe share some of the points that were the most exciting or things that really stuck with you for the scientific sessions, some of the events that we've had in the exhibit hall, some of the things for the late-breaking clinical trials, and that's a lot of questions. So let's start with scientific sessions. Is that good? Sounds great. Okay, perfect. I think actually the start to the meeting was really exciting for me. I think having the first annual case competition moderated by Mitch Saka and won by a great fellow from the University of Chicago. I think mentored by uh, one of our early career members, Dr. Mark Belkin, was phenomenal success. And so really kudos to HFSA and the planning committee for organizing that. I think it's part of the reason why we're here is for our patients. And I really celebrated the clinical decision-making that goes into some of our more complex patients. I think what immediately followed was a great discussion at a town hall meeting led by doctors Mark Drasner and Neethi Reddy on the state of the specialty. And I think we have to, you know, the first step in solving any problem is recognizing there is one, right? And so we have to recognize that we have a problem and it's a leaky pipeline in our specialty. And the last three years of fellowship match have not been a success. And 
And so I, I really commend HFSA in taking a leadership role in trying to solve the problem. And the first step in doing that was having a consensus task force that convened earlier this year and grappled with some of the key issues. And we can talk about some of those in more detail, but I think first and foremost, a pathway or alternative pathways have been proposed that I think will require much more serious deliberation, multi-stakeholder discussions to see what will ultimately come to fruition. But this idea that level three competency could include some distinction right. in either critical care or cardiomyopathy or essentially a major of sorts during your advanced heart failure fellowship training year, I think is, is actually a wonderful idea that merits further consideration and how we implement that into programs. Um, I think we had some very good discussion, uh, vibrant discussion uh, on Friday and um, obviously more to follow. And I recommend our listenership and readership to take a look at the simultaneous publication in, in JCF uh, from that team, that meeting. Absolutely. Shoshana, that's such a great, those highlights I think are pivotal for the HFSA mission because it started, this meeting started with patient care yeah. and then focused on one of the probably biggest hot button issues in our community yeah. in the last, you know, year, year and a half that's really come into focus. And I think, you know, this meeting is so multifaceted and it's like a big beast to try to wrangle all the cool things that are happening. There's so many cool things. And so I'm going to phone in on you, Dr. Barzlaj, to tell us what set you on fire for late-breaking clinical trials here. So as we put our trialist hats and <laughs> emerging research and transformation hats on. Absolutely. So I think the late-breaking clinical trial, personally, I think I think that was Amarat, uh, Dr. Marat Fudim did a fantastic job with the GSN ablation, especially with HFPF having any new avenue is always welcome and like, you know, identifying who to respond. I think this comes, usually this is something we follow with the tail end. Okay, we have this, who will respond to it? He started with like who will respond to it. So I think that's very uh, like, you know, I'm looking forward to what it brings. Uh, second thing was uh, absolutely uh, Dr. Butler's like amazing review. I uh, I just am a big fan of his discussions on any trial, like for step heart failure specifically, especially with our patient population. And uh, what I think was most uh, like, you know, actually very educative for all of us was the discussion that followed. So it was like reading a paper, reading an editorial, and also to look forward to the future insights, what questions I'm looking at. So like step heart failure, I think I, I have burning questions about this, like, okay, how does it help? Okay, obesity, yes, non-obesity, which was highlighted. Truncal obesity, in Indian diaspora, truncal obesity is a big issue, adiposity is a big issue, is semaglutonide, which is kind of a miracle drug right now, is it going to help that? So I think all these, it created those burning issues as well, right? You know, you're thinking about it. I think this was a fantastic, fantastic session. Other sessions also, like we are having like uh, another session at 2 p.m., which I'm moderating with my colleague, Zach Cox. We are talking about like Ashley's uh, heal of GDMT, GDMT in chronic kidney disease, second line therapies of GDMT, like, you know, when to initiate, when to think of it. So I think these are questions which we always struggle in our daily practices. And many sessions, iron deficiency in heart failure, which I think beyond anemia, I think, you know, the first question people ask when you put for heart failure is like the resident calls me, oh, there is no hemoglobin, it's kind of normal, you still want to do it. Right. So right. I think it's very educative. And one point I would like highlight outside of the trial was when I was in the poster sessions, there were some residents actually presenting their research. 
which I think is the backdrop of like, uh, you know, the fading interests we are quote unquote, we're talking about. Mm-hmm. I think it was very encouraging. Those residents showcasing their research. I think it's very encouraging from them. One was first year. I just thought it was, I, it was a great chat I had with her. Like, you know, and it, it's very encouraging in the backdrop of whatever we are going, talking about mm-hmm. and discussing. And I would thank GCF at the same time, the women in France, but in NCS, we did a survey and like, you know, why this is dropping and GCF actually published it. So thank you for that. I think you always bring up burning and raging topics. So that's about it from like oh, my standpoint. Yeah, I yeah. think we're good. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think, Anja, thank you so much yeah. for really showcasing and highlighting some of the really amazing sessions, everything from poster sessions where, you know, we, we have have oh, different focuses, right? So we said, okay, there's patient care, there's research, there is the community at large and how we serve it, right? And I think this meeting really, there's so much in it and there's so much content, but we speak to all of these tripartite missions for HFSA. And, you know, I want to just thank both of you because you guys really do a great job of like healing the accurate pulse <laughs> of this meeting and giving us these sort of very distilled, high level takeaways that are just super, super important. And we look forward to your tweets and your posts and, you know, you're doing a great job with social media catalyst. So I didn't give Michael any chance for any sort of questions. So okay. I'm going to, I'm no, no, I, I will not hog these wonderful people. I will give you an opportunity. Go for it. Thank you, Priya. One of the things, I mean, that's, you know, obviously a great thing we always look forward to at meetings is getting to see colleagues, right? <laughs> and, you know, a lot of us, we work together and we get to see each other virtually or, you know, we communicate from afar. But, so, you know, these meetings are such a great opportunity to kind of, you know, build our community more, get to see each other, get to, get to know each other a little bit more. You know, and then also, as, as you have mentioned, you know, with the, the younger generation coming in and, and presenting, their work and starting to become a, a part of the society. What do you think we, we can do, I guess, looking forward to continue to build our community and, you know, bringing in more enthusiastic trainees and early career heart failure cardiologists to, to not only want to be a part of the HFSA, but, you know, come to the, the annual meetings and, and, and network and, and, and share ideas and, you know, and, and everyone, you know, continue to get to know each other and kind of continue to build this community moving the care of the heart failure patient forward. I think I'll take this one because I really want to give a shout out to Shashank and uh, Mark Belkin for, I think this time there was phenomenal fellow involvement. The physician in training lounge was always brimming. There were a lot of like sessions going on. They had like a couple of cardiogenic workshop yesterday. Today there's a CPET one. So I think he has a lot of ideas. He's our incoming uh, like session chair, like, uh, sorry, early career career chair. So I think I'll let him share the ideas, but I really wanted to give a shout out to you and Mark. Thank you. That's very kind of you. And really the credit actually belongs to Katija Breathitt, who served as the outgoing chair and helped organize it along with Dr. Belkin, Sarah Chusey and many others as part of that committee. So really want to recognize their work. Want to thank you, Priya, for uh, participating in our <laughs> session tomorrow morning before plenary sessions, because I think it was very important. It was a session in the professionals and training lounge looking at career options for heart fair. And I think it's very important to present that there's a diversity of options. It's not just simply the academic model, but even within the academic model, I think it was wonderful to hear how a physician scientist like yourself has many different hats that you have to wear. And being able to to juggle all of those and find professional fulfillment. So thank you for sharing. No, thank you so much. I was honored to be part of that panel. And 
you know, I, I feel like I'm always so inspired to be some small part of this process of this wave of transformative change that leaders like you and you are really at the very forefront of are just such good stewards of our community and for right. folks who are, you know, early in their training, middle in their training experience, you always find a way to bring the best to us in a accessible, easy way and to bring up the folks who are coming through the ranks and really kudos to you guys. You guys do an amazing job and we're so very, very thankful. And I just wanted to ask you guys, you know, you guys are so plugged in to being amazing social media catalysts. How do you take the energy and all the energy that we have at this meeting? I think everybody was talking about how stimulated they have been for the last couple of days. How do you take that energy and then kind of tip it and distill it down for the rest of the year. So this energy kind of lives with us as we move through seeing patients, doing research, having grants rejected. (laughs) Part of the process. (laughs) Having prior authorizations denied or Uh whatever else it is. How do you take this enthusiasm and how do you foresee, you know, social media as as helping to to kind of move that forward? I think it's a great question. You know, I, 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 feel very fortunate we're actually, you know, filming this here in the JCF Central Lounge. And I hope that all members actually feel that JCF is the journal of the HFSA, right? And that this is their professional home. Uh, it certainly has been for, for me. And I really thank uh, Rob Mentz and Anulala and Meredith Hurt, among others, for their visionary leadership in providing that. So to address those questions, I think we have sort of a longitudinal peer review mentorship program. There's a very exciting collaboration that's going on with ABC for writing and mentorship for black physicians who are interested in, in an academic pathways and trying to address that, that pipeline. There's obviously the launch of HF stats that occurred through Dr. Boskert's efforts and were published uh, yesterday in a vibrant discussion that we had. So I think that there's excitement uh, on, on that end. And then it's it's also being able to, you know, identify those threads or elements that we all find unifying. And so I'll, I'll specifically uh, recognize Dr. Nazreen Ibrahim, mm-hmm. who, you know, has founded a wonderful nonprofit, right? Mm-hmm. The Equity and Heart Transplant Project. And we've had multiple different sessions to kind of bring that community and collegiality together. Last night at karaoke, uh, which uh, raised more than $11,000 for, for the program. And then today, this afternoon, right, for the CPAT, where we've got a number of early and mid-career physicians competing on CPAT, and those bets being placed will be donations, actually, to the program. So I, I think it, it's, it's trying to provide more longitudinal mentorship, which actually was identified as a priority and a focus for the board of directors on during this meeting. And, and as early career chair, I see it as my privilege uh, to be able to help continue that. That's amazing. But yeah. I don't think I can say anything after this. <laughs> you said it all. Okay. And uh, essentially, like, uh, I think social media kind of was like, is, I think it's finding a role and it has catapulted, especially since the pandemic. I think it, like, I met you on social media. Most of us, yeah. we met on social media before we met, uh, like, real life. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, social media even has a future role, especially with this charity. Absolutely. Like, you know, like whatever we learn from this charity, like putting everything together, we're having fun. We're raising money. We're like doing it for a good cause. Yeah. 
I think this all kind of sums it up very well. Like in, of course, social media, especially we're talking about people who actually feel late. We can discuss things here, but there are people out there who sometimes cannot attend all the conferences. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a very good platform for them. They can be engaged, sitting yeah. in there, like probably taking their calls, seeing their patients. They can be engaged. They can have their ask, they have their questions asked by all the experts around yeah. there. Yeah. So I think this is a good leverage from all the physicians, whether it's academic, non-academic, across the globe, wherever internet has access. So essentially, I think it has opened our horizons for all of us. I think a lot of our partnerships cross both, like you know, oh shit, like all the continents has been through social media. Yeah. So I think social media is the future. And then that's very well said. I think it's certainly that's the most positive utilization of yes. social media, I think, is the gatherer of teams yeah. that are transcendent of geography and time exactly. uh, time zone, right? Yeah. And so I think that is really probably the most positive way to use social media for us to be collaborative and really come together when there are otherwise other physical barriers to coming exactly. together in the ex free exchange of ideas and transformation of ideas. Exactly. Uh, for the furthering of patient care, education, and health and well-being for all of us. Yeah. So that being said, thank you again. We know you guys are very busy and you have other things to go cover so we can go read about it <laughs> on our news feeds. But uh, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. For thank you. And thank you to both of you. I'm a big fan of the podcast. It's an honor to be one of your guests today and love listening to the work that you're sharing. So keep keep up the great work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Thanks, Priya. Thank all you. Right, so, signing off. So from Cleveland, for all those of you who didn't make the trip this year, uh, this scientific meeting next year will be in Atlanta. And uh, we hope to see you all there. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. See you next time, whether in person or online. On behalf of Michael and myself, we want to thank you for tuning into the Heart Failure Beat. We'll catch you next time with more exciting news and discussions from the world of heart failure. The opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of this podcast are their own and not necessarily those of the Heart Failure Society of America. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit hfsa.org slash hfbeat. Follow HFSA on Twitter and look for us at hashtag hfbeat.